good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to this iteration of Faster Than a Stand-Up. I'm Sunny Sanger, and I will be your host today. In this iteration, we are starting a fundamental series on DevOps, so we have tons of great content coming your way over the next coming episodes. Joining me today, friend of the podcast, Jesse Marchan, Senior Director, DevOps, ISBN, People and Enablement Operations, new friend of the pod, Dominic Mia, Principal Engineer at S. AP. How are you both doing today? Good, thank you. Good. Thank you. Um, very well, and thanks for having me. <clears throat> no problem. No, great to have you on board. So we're going to be kicking off the DevOps series with our first topic, which is failure. So what a great way of starting this series off. So let's get straight into it. Um, let's start with the first one then. Jesse, how did you get into DevOps? <laughs> I think you uh, spoiled it a little bit on, on, on mentioning failure, but it, it is, everyone loves the uh, massive failure story and uh, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to give mine, but uh, basically, you know, I'm going to start out with, with, with uh, a phrase operational leverage, which I had not uh, really thought about or had heard until, until uh, the CFO for, for org came into to my office and said, dude, you're, you're, you're breaking us. And I'm like, what, what do you, what do you mean? He's like, and, and it all goes back to a, a, a big change in a big program we'd, we'd implemented. Um, I was at the time in, in charge of a lot of our billing and invoicing processes uh, on the IT side. And we had designed our processes to have some sort of, uh, for the most part, it was all completely automated, but we typically had around 1% of our invoices that we had to manually review and, and, and uh, verify and, and, and correct. Uh, and uh, we had implemented a big system change that had moved that percentage of, of manual work from 1% to 3%. And that doesn't sound like that, that big of a deal. Um, Numbers-wise, it's in the tens of millions of dollars, so it, it is. Uh, but uh, also importantly, that broke the accounting teams and the invoicing teams from an operational side. And, and his strategy had always been to, to leverage automation as much as possible with our, with our IT systems. And, and, and by breaking uh, that sort of 1% target, it really, really broke his, broke his team from a working perspective. So it, it really gave me a lot of empathy for his team. I, I really felt, you know, our entire IT team felt, felt terrible that they were having to do a lot more uh, work. And it, and it took a year to fix and sort of a, tier, a year to work through that backlog and, and, a lot, and both from the IT and, and the business side. So it was, it was um, a big deal. And, you know, upon sort of retrospection, I really had to think about why, what, what causes to make these, these uh, f uh, issues and failures. And, and there are sort of the typical ones. There was a rush to meet deadlines. You know, we, we, we skipped some quality and regression testing. Uh, but, you know, a lot of it made me start to realize there's got to be a better way of doing things. And, and that's what, what sort of uh, was a catalyst for me to, to really begin my DevOps journey and just think about how do we do things differently? How do we get better? How do we bring up our, our systems, have more reliable systems? And, and, and how do we have, you know, better flow, better velocity, and, and ultimately empathy for our users? So that's kind of my story um, on, on, on how I got into DevOps and why, why, why failure was a sort of a, a, a big failure, was a triggering point for me. Right. Dominic, 
how did you get into DevOps? Yeah, I I think I more grew into DevOps or was uh, molded in it, let's say, um, over time. So I didn't really experience the world before DevOps, kind of. Um, I was in some startups before or smaller companies before SAP. So it was always about um, listening to the customer and reacting to the customer need, let's say, not as fast as possible, but, but quite fast. Um, one thing that always bothered me is uh, as a developer back then and also now is kind of if you have a silo and uh, you finish uh, you finish your work and throw it over the fence and the other guys throw it over the fence and it goes on like this so for a normal change you need weeks um, until it passed all the silos so this is something that I didn't experience from the beginning. Um, I was responsible for the most applications I touched end to end, um, which we also try to encourage here. So I think like this teams of 10 or you build it, you run it, all these buzzwords around the DevOps area. I think they always resonate with me. And this is what I try to encourage and empower every day, like this end to end ownership um, to listen to the customer uh, with influence or, or other voices and try to bring it to the customer um, at a reasonable pace. <clears throat> Another aspect is feature flags, right? So you can show it to some customers um, this fast. We will touch it later, I think, with, with the feedback loop. So mm -hmm. this is super important to show something to a smaller group, uh, get the feedback and be able to implement it uh, within within a reasonable time. And another the point from Jesse about automation. So this is also something uh, we, we were an acquisition company. Um, and there was always not enough uh, person power around. So automation was a big factor. Like you had to automate every task you did once and you had to do it a second time. On the second time, it was already worth it mm -hmm. to automate it in, a, in any possible way. Mm -hmm. So these are like a little bit the, the four legs, I would say, that I, how I got into DevOps and how I try to live it every day. Yeah, and, and I really like the, the collaborative aspects of, of what you mentioned too because i think there's there's nothing more frustrating than being um a, a developer or, or someone uh, on the team and being blocked because you're waiting on on, on another team or yeah. something that's out of your control like you want your work which is extremely valuable to to be uh you're building something right so you want it to be to be tangible and out there and, and if you're waiting for like six weeks for another team to pick up or you know to get it deployed or whatever that mess next thing on the chain is it's it's frustrating absolutely and when you when you show it end to end or when you own it end to end like you also see the impact of when you fail i think this is also super important right in a mm -hmm. siloed world you never see the the applause in good cases and kind of the rage of customers in bad cases. And I think this is also super important. Like yeah. it tells you a lot that when you deploy bugs or you generate an incident via a deployment or a change that you will feel it from the customers because you are so close. Right. Here's a question for both of you then. Um, rewinding back to the start of your careers, what would you, what would back then say about when you started about the benefits of failure, if you look at it now. So what would you now tell when you started the benefits of 
failure? So from our side, I think it was always, when I started, it was always good. I had a mentor back then, um, which worked at, with me at SAP again. And failure was never um, a blame game. So we always took it. I had always the chance to took it as an opportunity to grow. Um, we always failed, um, frankly, a lot. So because we did a lot of small changes and some of them uh, were, were not that great or failed. And we, I always kind of received this feedback in never received feedback in a negative way, right? We try to learn from every incident. Um, if, we, if we made a mistake, a human error, by, we tried, can we maybe uh, automate this the next time so the same uh, mistake does not happen again? And if not, we, we generated a checklist. So for me, this was always less a failure process, but more a growth process. I think this is how I always learned, let's call it growth and not failure, how it yeah. works. Yeah. And, and, and I'm going to just echo that and, and say it, it really is about learning, right? I mean, if you, can, if you fail without learning, you really, <laughs> you're really not growing. And that's, that's, that's the, the whole point, which is you're, you're learning and, and growing. But, I, but, but to, to take it up a step, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's important is what are the elements that allow one to learn in, in a manner that is... Uh, um, not necessarily optimized, but what's the right environment? And then that deals a lot with, are there, you know, the, is there the right feedback loops? And we'll talk about that. So you, so you learn quickly, right? And, and, and we'll talk about that in a, in a later episode. But one of the most important ones also is, is, is there psychological safety within in the, in the team and, and back to, you know, not blaming people uh, for, for the errors. And there's a, there's a great, um, uh, and I'm not the originator of this content, but there's a great sort of comparison of the, if anyone recalls the 2017 uh, AWS S3 outage versus the, at the uh, a similar time, the 2017 Equifax, you know, credit bureau uh, hack where, where, you know, most of the U.S. population's social security's numbers were exposed, but but they in some of the 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 analysis and what people were saying from those in the Equifax organization, you know, the quote is the human error was that the individual who's responsible for communicating the organization to apply the patch did not. That's what their CEO said. Versus in, on the on the AWS one, um, which which all talked about. Uh, while removal of the capacity is a key operational practice, in this instance, the tool was used a lot of too much capacity, et cetera, et cetera. But it was not blaming the person. They said, yes, the person, uh, the, the person made an, uh, uh, an error, but really, how do we improve the, the system around him and the tools around him to uh, prevent you know, operators from, from making mistakes? Um, so, you know, they ended with, we are also auditing our op operational tools to ensure we have similar safety checks uh, and, and make changes to improve the recovery time versus saying, yeah, it was, you know, the person that, that made the, 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 yeah, I the fault. I think that's a very good point. Uh, it's also something that I noted down in the failure area. Something that I always enjoyed is, enjoy this management trust. And yep. I think this is something that we struggle a lot with currently. Um, this 
option to or like this way to remove the 10 approval gates and uh, like a meetings where someone approves a release like mm -hmm. seven meetings sitting seven people sit in a call and approve a release mm -hmm. um, to get culturally rid of that and kind of establish the trust that people inherently would want to deliver a good product and kind of empower them to do so i think this is also um, quite important to what jesse said with the psychological safety but also the your trust from managers or or managers managers that the engineers want in to inherently deliver a good product and let them try to do it and yeah and and there's and there's i think um not even for the management side i think there's also a big myth around some of the compliance and audit functions around these where where you know when we talk about segregation of duty or, or things of those nature which uh, feel like they can slow down the process but but really you know i think audit done right and and, and you know risk management done 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 well if we can really you know document and automate those things that are part of the audience and compliance checks it's good for everyone not just the teams and the developments developers and, and and the DevOps teams, but also from an audit perspective, it makes it makes it easier. I mean, you know, just taking a, a very simple example of like segregation of duty, which uh, uh, on on code check-in, they want some, you know, the four eyes principle, right? Someone else besides just the developer checking in the code. And what better way to do that via like, you know, a pull request, right? And, and have an automated process. And that's a very simple example, but but um, something that I think you know, uh, modern audits uh, love because they can see the full flow and traceability of, of all of the yeah. all of the things. So um, not just management, audit compliance, all of the things, all, and all of those things need to be be talked about, and, and we'll talk a little about that later in some of our system thinking uh, episodes. Yeah, and some of these could definitely go into the parking lots because there's some some great examples you both have given there. I think that's a wrap on this particular episode. Um, thank you so much both for sharing your stories, your experiences as well on that. And that's the end of this iteration. I'm Sonny. And Jesse. And Dominic. Until the next iteration, you can give us a rating at your podcast provider or shoot us an email at info at fasterthanastandup.com or find us on Twitter at FasterStandup. Thanks for listening. And that was Faster Than a Standup. The opinions on this podcast are solely those of the participants and not of their employers.